Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, gravity betrays you and every kiss enslaves you. Getting a thrill out of tampering with the atmosphere, all rubber gloves and no head. Everything's a thrill and every girl's a kill. We're dying to be invaded and put the blame on someone else. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. This is this is Vinyl Tap, and it's not really night, but we're pretending. <laughs> I'm joined by uh, two other gentlemen who wasted their youth reading liner notes. <laughs> I've got uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, uh, the most extraordinary and celebrated for his humility. Uh, he's our <laughs> producer. Hello, he's, Tapsters. He's, endless. We could spend the rest of the show talking about awards you've won for your humility. <laughs> Award-winning humility. But he never talks about it because by, he's so uh, the The youngster... <laughs> he reminds us that it's not the uh, 70s anymore once, once a week. We got Tony Slagle. Tony, how you doing? I'm, I'm feeling a lot older than young, but I'm doing fine. Well, at the end of this hour, you'll feel real young compared to the people you share uh, the microphone with. Okay. Well, speaking of sharing a microphone, we're not sharing a microphone. We are scattered all over Central Texas because of the... Omicron yeah. outbreak. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually am in, in a house filled with people with Omicron, uh, but it won't touch me. Um, and nobody's really sure why I have such immunity, although the uh, the term high T has come up. <laughs> God. God. <laughs> Speaking of high T, tonight, we're dealing with Graham Parker and his most celebrated album, Squeezing Out Sparks from 1979. Uh, I think I was a freshman in high school, maybe. Uh, this is a big deal. This album is, of course, uh, on the Rolling Stones top 500 of all time, number 334. That's probably. I bet we could find at least four dozen albums ahead of it that should not be there. 
Um, this is this reminds me a little bit of uh, Elvis Costello and uh, the Pretenders in that it's a uh, it's a critic's darling. Uh, the critics were very excited about this one. Uh, almost everybody gave it um, gave it five stars. Uh, you uh, you're probably having trouble guessing who picked this one because um, I think any one of the three of us could pick it. Uh, but this happens to be a Tony pick. Tony, why'd you pick this album? A couple of reasons. Um, I, I actually can't. It's funny. You said you were, what were you a freshman in high school when this came out? I, th- I think I was still. The I first think time I, I was a freshman in high school. Yeah, I was nine. I think I was worried about getting to the 13th key on Pac-Man when this album came out. <laughs> uh, but um, this, this album, well, a couple of things. One is. Um, this is I've talked before about how this kind of this this is an album that fits my MO, which is albums that are kind of a sea change or there's something, you know, I either like talking about debuts for some reason or albums in somebody's discography that is a change of direction uh, that's kind of seemingly out of nowhere, but a very positive change. And this album fits into that. Um, it also straddles that same line that early Elvis Costello does, where it just kind of hovers around the periphery of what's power pop. I mean, I don't think you could call it power pop necessarily, but it has a lot of the same elements of power pop and new wave mm-hmm. to a certain extent, a lot more than his, his uh, first three albums do, although they do have elements as well. Um, I also like the fact that Graham... Graham Parker is one of those guys, again, like Elvis Costello and and a lot of the guys that were in the whole pub rock scene where they're kind of building on the shoulders of giants. You know, people talk about this being a precursor to punk rock and uh, uh, or or Graham Parker being a precursor to punk rock. But when we've talked about punk before, I think there's a, a, a distinction we we've always made. And I think it's a proper one between the U.S. and the U.K. And I think guys like Graham Parker, Elvis Costello, some of these guys have much more in common with what the U S punk guys were doing, which is they recognized that rock and roll was over kind of over bloated and they wanted it to return to something that was a little, for lack of a better term, a little pure in terms of the music. Uh, UK punk wanted to destroy music. That was their whole thing was just making, making as much destruction musically as possible. Um, I don't think this guy has anything in common with that. He he is building on what came before, um, and yeah. kind of all over the place in a in a good way. Um, mm-hmm. And then let me ask you something about what you just said, Tony. Yeah, is uh, it seems like U.S. Uh, punk is much less political. Oh. Uh, well, yeah, I think when you're talking about the first generation of punk, absolutely. Right. The the politics of that was to, again, return rock and roll back to its essence. Uh, in the 80s, when you started getting to more hardcore stuff, that became that became very political. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't political like the stuff in the UK was. Again, that was all about knocking tearing stuff down including this, whatever political system was going it, on. Then. It seems uh, backwards because in this instance, it seems like the British were more grandiose than the Americans, which um, that seems weird to me. That's backwards. Well, I think the other distinction between, or the other comparison between this and what was going on in the U S is uh, for the most part, uh, 
while everybody says, oh, I saw the Ramones and it showed you that anybody could play, pick up a guitar and play, most of the people around that scene in New York knew what the heck they were doing around an instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people mm-hmm. on the UK side didn't uh, to a certain extent. Um, that's not to knock what they did. I mean, when we talked about the Sex Pistols, I think we all agreed there's some fantastic music being made there. The guys on this album we're talking about tonight know their way around their instruments. They're no, they're no slouches, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. Um, and the, the kind of the last few things I want to talk about is I, I've discovered something in doing this podcast that I was not aware of, and that is I evidently have a real love for anything that is associated with the pub rock scene in the UK. I mean, it seems obvious, but I didn't realize that we started talking about this stuff and I'm like, Holy cow. I love this stuff. I started digging around and listening to stuff that was kind of the first wave of that stuff. And I absolutely Mm -hmm. love it. It's, it's some of the, it's some of the best music that's ever been made. And I feel dumb that I didn't know about some of this, like Brinsley Schwartz. I didn't know a whole lot about that band or Dr. Feelgood. I mean, I don't know why it's such a surprise to me. I guess just mainly I thought digging into it deeper, I'd find something that didn't hit me the right way, but it all does. And and also you're kind of a mystery to yourself because unlike other members of this team, you don't always try to make it about you, Tony. And we appreciate that. (laughs) I appreciate that too. Um, I, and then the last thing I want to say is that um, I I came to Graham Parker late in life, uh, relatively late in life um, due to a friend of mine named, named rich horton who um was a big fan of his and uh when we were when i was living in dc going to grad school he was a friend of mine up there uh, going to grad school with me and he and he talked me into going to see graham parker play at this place um in dc and, and he's playing with this band called the figs who i liked and the coolest thing about that show i mean there are lots of cool things about it but the figs came out and opened dressed like you know just like normal guys then they got off the stage and came back and they were his backup band and they were wearing black suits, white shirts and thin black ties. And it was one of the coolest things I'd ever <laughs> seen in my life. Graham Parker was just dressed like Graham Parker, but the band had this whole uniform costume thing going on and it made the show. I mean, it sounds weird, but it was one of the coolest visual things I'd ever seen. And they <laughs> sounded great because um, the figs are a fantastic band if you don't know them. But anyway, so all of that made me, made me kind of delve into Graham Parker. Um, and, uh, and, and this album is just, it just hits everything. I, I, I don't think, and I think Graham Parker has even said this, when I think somebody asked him, what's his two out of all your discography and the guy's done tons of stuff. What's your favorite albums. And this is one of the ones he always names and rightfully. So this is a yeah. high watermark for this guy and this band that he's playing with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a fantastic album. Yeah. Uh, well, JM, before we go any further, uh, I have a question for you. 
Are all you right. at all surprised to hear that uh, Tony was excited when he saw a bunch of guys in skinny ties? <laughs> Not one bit. That's, uh, that's also in his bit. genre. Yeah. Well, uh, I got a little something before we go on. Oh, <laughs> let me guess. <laughs> We're going to play a game of connection. And uh, as, as the regular listeners to this is Vinyl Tap knows, this is where we look back over the 50-odd albums that we've already talked about and find connections to this album. Our two contestants tonight will be the ever-humbled Jonathan J.M. Rowe <laughs> and, of course, uh, Skinny Tie Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was skinny, but go ahead. <laughs> no, the tie is skinny. Oh, okay. That's, that's all right. The ties were skinny. <laughs> no one on this show has ever been accused of being skinny. <laughs> not since uh, not since this album came out. Anyway, um, all right, uh, I've, I've got a question. Uh, we've covered some other albums. Can one of y'all <laughs> tell me where we're, where we're going, where we've been before? Well, the obvious one is is Elvis Costello. Okay, there's a couple of things there. Uh, can you can you list them for us? Well, in terms of this uh, Grant Parker's career, um, two of his first three albums were produced by Nick Lowe. Okay. Um, he, well, hold he, on. Uh, Nick Lowe has produced other people we've talked about. I, I know, but you asked me to talk about Elvis Costello, so that's why I brought that okay. up. Um, you got uh, me on the technicality there. <laughs> um, his, uh, his manager, uh, Dave Ro- is it Robbins? Says? Uh, yeah, Robbins. Uh, Dave Robbins was a co-founder of... of um, Stiff Records, who uh, we've talked about a lot of times on this, um, and, and Grant Parker, of course, uh, one of uh, some of his stuff was released on that label. Um, and, uh, we've been to Stiff Rock Records a couple of times. Um, yep. Uh, Nick Lowell, Elvis Costello, and uh, Any Trouble? But the Pretenders have a connection. Uh, Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe. Yeah. Okay. Well, then there's the producer, Jack Nietzsche, who did the string arrangements for Neil Young on uh, Harvest Moon. And he wrote, uh, Thus Sprigs Zarathustra also. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and then this album has a song about abortion on it. And when we talked about the Sex Pistols album, that also has a song, Bodies. Is it Bodies, the song that's about abortion? I forget. One of the songs on that yeah. album is, is a, uh, the Never Mind the Bullocks is also about abortion. Yeah. Both, both uh, Graham Parker and Elvis Costello were labeled as angry young men yeah and uh i i hear it a lot more with graham parker than i do with Elvis. oh i i agree with that 100 <laughs> especially on yeah. this album this album is just yeah. filled with vitriol but in a great way yeah it really is <laughs> just the, it's uh, a snarling yeah, album it is you know, it it's, is. it's, it's it's so much easier to be tolerant of an angry person when they're angry about some of the same things you are um <laughs> The thing about Elvis Costello, I've talked about this before, and I've just been driven mad trying to describe it. But it's this kind of voice uh, that these guys have. Um, it, I think it's similar. Uh, mm-hmm. it reminds, the other ones I put in this category would be Any Trouble, uh, Joe Jackson, and uh, yeah. Tony, I thought of one last night, the Boomtown Rats. Um, they have that yeah. similar way of singing that I can't describe. It, it's... Very- 
it's yeah. it's kind of an urgent urgent choppiness to it. I you know what I would say about this album though. If we're just gonna again, I don't want to make this all about a comparison, but I you know we've talked about this. I love Elvis Costello. I think Graham Parker's got a slightly better voice. I agree I think, with that. I think I his voice, and I think it's not it's not so much uh, the way it's how do I describe it. It's just got. I think it comes from his love of soul music. Yeah. It's got it's got soulfulness to it in a way that Elvis Costello's does not. And again, that's not to knock Elvis Costello because I love his voice. I know a lot of people, not a lot of people, some people find it uh, odd. Mm-hmm. My daughter's being one. But I I love his voice. But Graham Parker's voice just has. I mean, it comes from his love of you know, love of yeah. Van Morrison. It just, it, it oozes that kind of yeah. soulfulness, yeah. or at least it's got that, that foundation of soulfulness to it that Elvis Costello is missing. I, I agree yeah. with that. But one yeah. thing on a softer song, I might give the edge to uh, Elvis Costello when singing quietly or softly. Well, um, I don't know. I, I, I might agree with you on this album, because I don't think it's really fair to say that because even the soft songs on this album, Graham Parker is dripping with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, he's uh, always yeah. dripping. Yeah. Um, um, well, uh, he's, he's, uh, yeah, this album's not a good example of that because right. uh, there's tension in his soft songs. Yep. Well, the songs that yeah, I got, um, I came to know, Graham Parker through MTV. I remember there was a uh, video that I just and a song by him that I liked a lot called Temporary Beauty. And you need temporary beauty and hope to God that it doesn't rain. You need temporary beauty even though it might be love in It is a soft song. And it is uh, Graham Parker singing his, uh, you know, singing in that kind of soft way. But again, it's also a very uh, sarcastic song. Uh, he does have that kind of ability to do softer songs, I think. And he said that album that he that that song was off of was an album that he was trying to make beautiful. So he has this idea that he can make beautiful music. My my uh, introduction to Graham Parker was very artificial. It was reading reviews that said i had to like him so so i said okay so and uh <laughs> and and of course of course i do like me so yeah so, sometimes sometimes those those reviews that say that are right sometimes yeah. well i've i've uh to be honest the ones that are wrong uh stand out to me uh i i think i was guided very well by reading reviews and avoiding what they said was garbage and, and drifting towards. I always took the attitude, if I didn't get it, that meant I hadn't listened enough. And yeah. that's usually paid off. And it's it's only now that I think I'm all that, that I uh, really take exception to some reviews. Um, so I've got on this one. The, this album, everybody loves it. And it's obvious why. I uh, uh, If you're done with connections, I've got a few I want to throw out to see if I can stump you guys. Uh, what does this what does uh, this artist have in common with the Clash? Horn section. Yep. 
the That's horn it? section on it. The, 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 yeah. horn, the, horn, the horn section that played on yeah. his first three albums. Oh, it's the on, same one. It's the same one. It's the same one on London Calling. <laughs> I thought JM was saying they yeah. both have a horn section. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same. The Irish, the Irish horns. Yeah. Or the the rumor brass or whatever you the want to rumor, call it. Rumor, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the Katrina and the waves horns. And they're also on a DB. I think they're on repercussion by the DBs as well, um, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Okay, uh, one other one uh, with this artist and um, and uh, rock pile outside of Nick Lowe. Dave Dave Edmonds plays uh, plays guitar on a song on his for, on Grand Parker's first album. He plays the, oh. the lead guitar on on uh, really does he really. Yeah, on on the song Back to School Days. So, uh, JM, I think I think before we get into a little bit of a, a, a brief history of this guy, I think we need to talk about the rumor. Yeah, the rumor were a, a fantastic band and they um this wasn't this the first album that they were actually no they weren't credited on i, I don't know if he's how many albums they've actually been credited on but they were uh they were kind of a we talked about brinsley schwartz um that was the name of the band and also the name of the guitarist but brinsley short schwartz was the band that uh, nick glow used to play in and members of that band moved on to become the members of the rumor um, one of them being Brinsley Schwartz and the other one being Bob Andrews, the the guitar or the, the keyboard player. Right. Graham Parker had kind of a ready made band for him uh, when he went into the studio. Well, uh, the what, first time what I heard, it was Dave Robinson. So uh, he was I guess Graham Parker was uh, some somehow got one of his um, demos played on the radio and yeah. uh, and, and Robinson uh, heard it. And, well, and then. Well, but David Robinson, I guess before that, he just had this band ready, like because all these guys weren't doing anything anymore. All their all those pub rock bands had broken up, so they right. were looking for something to do. And he got uh, he got them together. I, I think Martin Belmont, the other guitarist, was the was a roadie for Brinsley Brinsley Schwartz at one point. Yeah, David Robinson was the manager for Brinsley Schwartz, and there was a bass player that. Um, Parker was playing with named Paul Riley and he actually knew Dave Robinson and knew that Dave Robinson was really wasn't doing much now that Brimsley Schwartz had, had broken up. So he introduced uh, Graham Parker to David Robinson and Dave Robinson had a, a small studio and they started actually doing some demos up uh, just Graham Parker and himself doing demos in that studio. And every now and then he would bring in other musicians and some of those musicians happened to be band members of uh, Brimsley Swartz. When it came time to make the actual the first record, I think they actually kept some of the the original demos were actually on. Uh, they didn't re-record some of the songs. They were actually the demo versions of those songs. In fact, they even tried doing some of those songs with the with the full band behind it, but it wasn't, they didn't quite work out. But first album of Graham Parker's Howl and Wind, or some of those are just uh, the demos that he had made for Dave Robinson. <laughs> I was just looking here at the liner notes and noticed uh, they have a bassist and a drum. <laughs> uh, I guess so, we can talk about the bassist. Uh, is anything interesting about these two characters? So Andrew Bodnar and Steve Goulding. Andrew Bodnar is the bassist. Steve Goulding is the drummer. Um, they both played on Watching the Detective. 
Yeah, and they both co-wrote I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass. I love the sound of breaking glass. Especially when I'm lonely. Which oh, is, really? Which is a Nicholas song off the Jesus of Cool album. It's yeah. a top 10 UK single. They co-wrote that with him. The funny thing about Steve Goulding is he plays with the Waco brothers now. So I've seen him, I don't know how many times I've seen him live and never really thought about his history for some stupid reason, but yeah. I know we got a lot to talk about, but I I got a question for y'all that's been bothering me for two weeks and I I can't answer this question. So I'm bringing it to you all. What does Graham Parker do really, really well compared to everybody else? I mean, he's got kind of an acerbic tongue. I think he's probably more than just about any songwriter out there. I'll add to that and say he does it with with a with a panache. Uh, yeah, and an underlying kind of sense of humor. So what's biting, but at the same time, it's 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 um acceptable to the listening audience, if yeah. that makes sense. It's I think receptive. I I view it as critical, but it's the type that doesn't destroy the person who's criticizing. Right. You know what I mean? Where some people uh, are overwhelmed with bitterness and they just, they become nothing except their bitterness. It seems right. he's able to throw it out and uh, maybe keep his sense of humor and keep his I, balance. I, you yeah. know, it, it's funny. He he was 25 when he got his record deal, but he seems just physically looking at him and just his worldview seems so much older than that to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the reasons Elvis Costello sort of leapt over him early on was Elvis Costello was significantly easier to market to younger people. And Graham Parker had had three albums out with the horn section where he sounded like a combo. It sounded like Van Morrison and Bruce Springsteen had a kid and and I think uh, he just always seems he's always seemed like an old soul to me in a way yeah. that that other musicians that are kind of lumped into that same category don't seem that way to me. I, I agree with that. This, yeah. this is uh, much more. Uh, well, I'm going to start talking about his early albums because those are the ones I like more. And um, much, <laughs> well, it ought to be obvious. Uh, and I've, I've been thinking that's one of the quiz questions we have to have is. Why does Doug like Halloween the best? Well, it I don't I mean that's I don't know how you don't listen to that for White Honey and not think that sounds I mean that sounds so much to me who's not a huge Van Morrison songs fan that sounds like to an untrained ear like a Van Morrison song. Van Morrison light, you know. It so, does, but, it, but the album sounds like somebody more than that. Springsteen sounds like somebody more than Springsteen, but you're getting close. Southside. Oh, Southside Johnny. Side Johnny. <laughs> yeah, you know that's exactly yeah, what I thought. You're absolutely I right. I can't. I can't believe I didn't think about it. You know, they toured with Southside Johnny. They went on yeah. a couple of tours. I didn't with know them. that, and I'm yeah, I'm getting angry now because I would love <laughs> to see Graham Parker because this this has obviously got to be a fantastic show. I had to put Helen Helen Wynn back on because I was trying to figure out all the critics like this album the best. They like Helen Wynn a lot too, yeah. but. 
why does Doug Cooper like Halloween so much more? And then I listened to it and my brain just went, you idiot. No, that Howlin' Wind is a fantastic debut. It's so yeah. good. It and, sounds and, like what you just said, a 30-year-old a, a guy well into his career putting out a record, and, not a and debut. The, and the thing about it is coming at it from the lens of squeezing out sparks and coming backwards to that, um, you would think it would be shocking, but you can kind of, I mean, at least for me, it wasn't, you could see where all that was coming from. And it was just cool. You know, when I heard that album for the first time, it was really cool listening to the horn section and how soulful all that stuff was. Yeah. And, uh, I I mean, I think it's it's a more American album than this one. Well, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's the, the other thing, all those pub rock guys were doing. They, while they're Brits, they were, immersed in american music uh, like just about everybody at that time that he was enamored with the beatles when he saw him on ed sullivan and um he his first band was what he was like 12 or 13 years old and they really didn't play their instruments very well or even at all and they were just kind of posing as uh as the beatles guys but when about the time that uh parker turned 15 he really started uh getting more into like um soul music and yeah, like Otis Redding. Stuff. Yeah, all that stack Otis Redding in particular yeah. was one of his one of his favorites. Um he dropped out of school when he was 16 and uh tried he was uh doing research for some company with, with hoof and for hoof and mouth disease. Oh, and then he quit and started traveling around the the uh Channel Islands um trying to just doing odd jobs and practicing guitar. And then at 21, he went to Paris and hung out there for a while. And then he hitched a hitchhike to Spain and he actually made it all the way to Gibraltar where he was, uh, well, he got to Morocco. Yeah. Eventually got to Morocco, but, um, he was playing in Gibraltar. He was, um, playing a club there and he actually got on some television show playing one of his own songs. Um, and then he joined this psychedelic band called, pegasus and (laughs) (laughs) he he joined as lead singer eventually but they only played songs in a minor so all all their songs here's here's a quote the the most psychedelic of all chords here's here's a quote from him uh i went to morocco joined a band called pegasus ran out of money went to gibraltar and worked on the docks writing songs about the sun and the morning and the birds. <laughs> yeah, he's a hippie. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I want to real quick, I want to talk about the Beatles thing, because he had a really kind of a cool take on what the Beatles meant to him. He yeah. said he said that, you know, he was aware of Buddy Holly and Elvis, but those guys weren't, they weren't British. And so while he, this is a personal thing, and I, I was thinking about this as a, as a Brit, you like that stuff, but can you imagine seeing the first time seeing somebody who's of just, just like you, who's doing this kind of music. And so that was the impact on huh. him. When he saw the Beatles was like, these guys, he, he said, uh, they were into, he goes, they were into the same stuff, Little Richard or whatever, but they were playing it. They talked like me. They weren't distant like Elvis Presley. And they seemed to be just like, they were just right up the road. Um, And so that's kind of a, I I just find that really fascinating that that had that impact on him in a way that you don't hear other people talk about, you know, exactly Um, the opposite of how we would uh, view the Beatles. Exactly. So how do they talk that way? That's so, and they, you can't even tell they're British when they're singing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
so yeah, so eventually he went back to England, uh, lived with his parents. Um, he was working at a filling station. Yeah, at a gas uh, station. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he just kept working on his guitar playing and songwriting. And kind of just out of necessity, he just decided he needed to form a band. So he put an ad in Melody Maker. And that's kind of what got everything rolling for him was it, pretty soon after he started playing, the bass player who mentioned earlier uh, in his band, Paul Riley, knew David or Dave Robinson. The rest was history. Dave Robinson just took a, a shine to Parker and just, uh, you know, he, like we were saying, he was looking for something to do since Brinsley Schwartz had just broken up. And one of those demos got played on the radio and Nigel Grange from Phonogram heard it and called up the radio station and said, who is that? I got to have this guy. That was both good and bad for Graham Parker because uh, I, th- I think the UK Vertigo Records, which is the UK uh, uh, label for Phonogram, was is, was fairly good to him. But Mercury, which was the US label, yeah. not, not not so good. Not so much, Yeah. <laughs> His first album was produced, as we mentioned, by Nick Lowe. Does anyone know who produced his next album? John Mutt Lang. Oh, really? (laughs) The producer, eventually the producer of ACDC and Def Leppard. Well, it's interesting that his first album had all the the horns on it. um, Because I I remember an interview with Southside Johnny after they put their first record out was just about the same time he put his first record out. And he said the week after they put their record out, the Billboard magazine had this headline yeah. that said, "Horn music is dead." Yeah. <laughs> well, and I and I think uh, yeah, we'll get to that. But I think Graham Parker absolutely felt that and was kind of responsible for the sea change after his third album. But um, yeah, I listen. I think I think those first two albums are fantastic. I like the third album too. I know a lot of people don't for some reason, but I like it. Um, uh, Which stick, one? stick to me. The oh, one yeah. that That's the first one I ever had. But a lot of people, it. a lot of people say it was a misstep. And and I think the reason I like it is because it sounds like the perfect, it's like the perfect blend of squeezing out sparks in the first two hours. It's, well, it, it's got a lot of energy on it. It uh, yeah, it's got that kind of feel. It's got that 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 um, immediacy, that energy that squeezing out sparks has, but it's still got the horn section in it. That was the last one that Nick Lowe produced. Yeah, and it was he had he did one more live album for Mercury, <laughs> but he was there. He even he was so angry with Mercury that he wrote a song called Mercury Poisoning, which is so great. That song is so great. <laughs> I got mercury. Arista, which was his new label in the U.S., because this was the first single that he did for Arista, didn't didn't want to like they they were concerned about what it would be like if they released it. So it was a, only it was initially released as a what they call a gray label promotional disc, where it doesn't have the label's name on it. Um, <laughs> and uh, I call that the cowardly release. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the backside uh, was "I Want You Back," the Jackson. Yeah, it was a Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and it's it's interesting. Graham Parker says the reason why that that particular song was not included on Squeezing Out Sparks is it was a throwaway. He's like, look, that song didn't have the integrity that the rest of the songs on that album huh. do. So I didn't want to put it on there. It's a fun song. I don't want to knock it, but it's you know, and I can see that. It, but that yeah. song is a blast. Before we move on, why did he change? What why was there this sea change in his uh, sound and approach? Doug, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you were <laughs> when you were talking about what uh, reading what Southside Johnny read in the press. He puts out two albums, and all of a sudden, UK punk happens, and he's starting to feel a little bit like he might be old school. Um, you know, he, uh, he he's he's worried about that particular the the R and B style. He even said in an interview, he said. Uh, I thought it was old hat, like like Southside Johnny was. Did he say that? He did. He did. Oh wow! Um, yeah, he did. Absolutely. Um, you know, he said his his. I love this. He goes, my music was too intellectual and fussy and way too old sounding. Um, so because of that, he decided to think. He thought, well, I want to be. How do I? How do I become relevant? And and unfortunately, what he did was he said, okay, we got to get, we got to dump the horns. Um, but the thing he had going for him, which is also something that he said is that the punk bands were kind of one, they were just one note things. And the, there's no way the rumor could be that the rumor was always going to be interesting, regardless of whether the homes, the yeah. horns were on it or not. Hmm. And so, uh, so you had punk on one side and then you had Elvis Costello's first album comes out and, and it's, it's a smash. And essentially it's, it's a version of what he'd been doing, but a much sharper, kind of more immediate version of it. And I think he was looking around going, everybody's talking about me being part of this angry young men thing. I've been doing this for a lot longer than any of these guys were, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder when he talks about Elvis Costello in these early interviews, because this guy had already put out two albums. He was well, uh, yeah, two albums before my aim is true came out. He was well-received critically, but he wasn't selling anything. Um, Saturday night live wasn't begging to have him on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, I think, I think, you know, that's what, um, you know, that third album, um, the, uh, stick or stick to me was kind of his attempt to get that way. That's why it's much more aggressive sounding, but he wasn't quite ready to jettison the the soul and R and B stuff in the way that he, he did for squeezing out sparks. And I think the label change just kind of made him realize, Hey, this is a new start. I can do this. I can do this differently. And I think he saw the writing on the wall. The good thing about what he'd done previously was, as I mentioned earlier, it infused what he was doing with a, a whole lot of soul. So you couldn't take that out of the songs on Squeezing Out Sparks. It's still there. I'll tell you what, we got a really good album here that we need to talk about. And we start with, this is, <laughs> I know what Tony's going to say. What a great opening. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? No, it's absolutely. <laughs> I, think I, even, I think I even typed that in my notes. <laughs> I'm surprised you even think you need to tap. It's, it's pretty obvious. He uh, even, he even thinks so. He talked. There's an interview where he's talking about the sequencing of this sequencing of this album, and he said that he, this this had to be the opener because it had everything going for it. It was different. This is a new album. Didn't have horns, and this song was the one that announced what this album was going to be about. Well, so he and the song is discovering Japan.
it, he wrote it. I know he wrote it when he was flying back from a tour in Japan. Uh, he was sitting on the plane and in his mind, he was thinking about all this stuff. Um, you know, he, he said that it, uh, it's, it's sort of about the, the distance, um, uh, you know, dislocation from home, uh, cause he'd been touring so much and, uh, you know, all these different time zones, but there's a weird sort of sexual undertone to this song, uh, that he doesn't talk about subtle at all. <laughs> no, I said, I didn't say subtle. I said weird well, sexual undertone to the song. I mean, the line where he says the GI is only user. They, they only ram right through her given an, an Eastern promise that they could never keep seeing a million miles between their joke and smile. She heard their hard denials. I don't know how that's not about guys going overseas and right. sowing their oats and then leaving it behind and coming back home. That's what it seems like to me, what discovering Japan is all about. It, it seems to me like he's hopping around topics, like everything that Japan reminds him of, probably flying home and writing down, oh yeah, Japan's where this happened. Oh yeah, Japan yeah. makes me feel that way. It's a really good example of what Parker can do better than a lot of people. And that is cram a whole bunch of words into a bar of music. And uh, make them rhyme. I mean, he's just he's he's does that a couple of times on this on this album. But yeah, he's just the. Um, I mean, it's almost uh, like he's out of breath when he's singing these uh, these lyrics. That's funny, Jam. I hadn't thought about. That's the reason why some of these songs sound like they're beating you, like they're knocking you upside the head because there's yeah. all this this like the force of the the lyrics just smacking at you in this little yeah. bar of music. In in that regard, he's uh, very different than Southside Johnny because. Uh, <laughs> Southside Johnny has to say baby every three words. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, we, we didn't mention this a whole lot, if at all, but uh, I think all three of us would agree that Graham Parker is a hell of a songwriter in terms of yeah. lyrics. His lyrics yeah. are really smart and intelligent and, uh, and cynical and funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, it's also he, when he is acerbic, it's usually not. <laughs> Uh, it's very specific, you know, you can, he's not just railing on something for the sake of railing on it. He's actually, there's something that he's actually railing against. That's really, and it's um, not cliche. Yeah. He's it's not, not mad at capitalism or the man or yeah. uh, somebody in a suit. Yeah. Well, um, I thought about you, Doug, when I read this, he, in an interview, he's talking about the song structure and he said, the, the chords spun around each other. The lyric was so totally mysterious to me that I didn't even understand it myself. And we've talked about that before. This kind of weird up over and over again. Yeah, this weird thing where you write the song and you look at it and you realize it's, you got something, but you don't know where the hell it came from. There's, there's two kinds of songwriters where there's the, the workmen that sit down and plug away. And then there's the one that it just pours out of them and they, they really don't know. I mean, yeah. so Van Morrison's the best example I can think of of that. Yeah. Um, anyway. This just, this was actually, this is the thing that surprises me. So this album was fairly popular. I mean, I think it hit the, did it hit the top 40 in the U S um, but, uh, but it, none of the singles went anywhere. This was released as a single in the UK and didn't chart. I don't get that at all. <laughs> yeah, it hit number forty on the US. The, the album, the album did. Yeah, the album. Yeah, but the none of the singles. He released several, a couple of singles on this, both different ones in the UK and the US, and none of them charted. And I don't, I don't know how this doesn't get radio airplay. I don't either. No, especially. I think it fits well after his change. It fits well with what the other stuff that was popular at that time. So it wouldn't be mm -hmm. as though he was having to jump across genres to get into the uh, type of music people were listening to. Right. 
We got local girls next. another uh, irresistible song oh my god this is yeah this is how this uh, this was kind of a hit i think or i well, remember seeing it on video well it got uh, radio for it play, it got it was it. it was the u.s single and they made a video of it but again yeah. it didn't chart i mean it did get play airplay but it didn't chart again how does that happen this song is know. so instantly accessible and catchy <laughs> and well, that's relatable that's most frequently asked question on this show yeah. Uh, right after uh, why did you pick this album uh the the second most uh, frequently asked question is why didn't this uh chart why right. wasn't this a hit you know i was younger than you guys you said you were freshmen in high school i don't know how you don't hear this song and immediately like associate <laughs> to, to what's going on in the oh, sky yeah, singing you know yeah you know i mean well, it's it's, like, uh, in high school when you stop like in the girls at your high school and you want to meet girls at other high schools so that's a big uh, that's a big deal but yeah, yeah it's that it's that idea you know that uh you're always going for the ones that, that are inaccessible but at the same time you're pissed off because they don't want to give you the time of day <laughs> exactly. you know that's what's so great about this song it's like he's yeah He's he's yearning for these uh, these girls, but he's also angry that he missed the Travis League. <laughs> and so I don't even care what she thinks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly I, the opposite. I, I yeah. love the way the keys and the guitar play off each other in this song too. It's it's just yeah. really 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 cool. Yeah. The, I, that guitar that guitar riff in this song is just so catchy. Yeah. You know? it's so yeah, a lot of guitar riffs on this album or catch but yeah, well, yeah that's a great one that's there's great not one. a whole i mean there's not a whole lot what i would what i would call traditional solos on this album yeah um yeah. but they're but the it's full of riffy hooks or hooky yeah. riffs i guess whatever well, whichever yeah. way you want to say the, it almost all the openings start with the cool guitar part yep. yeah 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 um yeah. i i found something really really fascinating about this in an interview with him he said when he went in the studio he was contemplating making this a concept album about the suburbs of England mm -hmm. and, and that this song obviously kind of hits on that, this song and uh, the other song that he says kind of were the two songs he was working on were Saturday night is dead. Mm -hmm. um, and then he's like, yeah, it felt a little confining. So I kind of went in different directions, but it's just, it's, it's funny to think because there are other songs. You can see a thread of that popping in where there's a little snarky comment about the suburbs here, about yeah. the suburbs there. It just is funny to think that a guy who was likely appalled by, by Prague would go in the studio and say, yeah, maybe we can make a concept album. <laughs> I, I think usually if, uh, if the album, if the songs are written close to the same time as one another, yeah. you end up with something close to a uh, a concept just because mm -hmm. they're all born in the same water. Well, nobody hurts you. I think 
I knew this was going to happen. We're just going, come on, it's so good. Well, come on. I, I mean, is there a better? I mean, I don't. I'm trying to think of the albums we've talked about. Is there a better one, two, three punch than the first three songs on yeah. this album? I mean, they're just. It's it, it's it's a it's just really the first three songs on this album are just yeah. Well, this this riff in particular, that this I love the opening riff on this one, but then it sounds so simple, and then it goes into that almost off key kind of part where it where it comes, and then it comes back into the original uh, key. It, it's an amazing riff. Yeah, Brinsley uh, Schwartz really shines on this song. He really does. Yeah, it's just and he just keeps it all in time, and you know, and then there's that really cool. There's that muted breakdown. Um, uh huh when he's still playing that riff over uh just the drums and the bass it's it's really cool i really like this the riff on this alone i could just listen to he gets and, to express some of his contempt for the subject <laughs> in this song yeah so, so again this is another song that kind of has that theme theme going through it but um uh, you know when you asked earlier what does he do almost better than anybody so again these there's th- here's three songs in a row that are unbelievably catchy earworms and 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 the depth of what he's talking about and the lyrics and the intelligence in the lyrics just I, I I don't know I don't know anyone who marries that as well as that guy does. It's a good strong side of music so far, and then it gets a little a little serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this the next song uh, brings us to a screeching halt after those three numbers, and. This is one of the the most unusual songs uh, that I can think of. Until it could say you can't be too strong. You can't be too strong. You can't be too strong. Can't be too strong. You decide what's wrong. Tony, since I don't want to talk about this, why don't you tell the audience what it's? Which song are we talking about, Doug? Uh, you can't be too strong. Right. Well, I guess before I start on what it's about, I will say that it's responsible for the title of the album. That's right. Yeah, there's a line in it that says everybody else is squeezing out a spark. Um again, another thing I'll talk about before I get to what the song's about. You guys probably know this and your research you did, but this is actually originally an up-tempo country song. And, really? Uh, no, yeah, I didn't know that. And I didn't Jack, know that. And Jack, I have a hard time imagining that. Yeah, Jack, Jack Nietzsche, when he heard the lyrics, said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you got to slow this song down. And Graham Parker have a banjo thought, on it. I don't know. But Graham the Eagles singing back up. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Graham Parker listened to him. Uh, that's the one thing that's remarkable about this. So Grant, you know, just a brief aside, Grant Parker, um, I don't think anybody would argue that the guy's got a bit of an ego about his talent. And I think justifiably yeah. so. But he's also when you when you hear him talk about what Jack Nietzsche did for this album and how much he they relied on him to kind of direct them where they needed to go. It's pretty impressive that a guy who, you know, felt he was better than everybody else at the time was willing to give that up to listen to this producer who uh you know if part of the things he did was like we're telling him hey this doesn't this should be a ballad and not a country song uh you know jack nietzsche has a whole he's like the unsung hero 
of this yeah. album. But um, this, this song's deadly serious. It's yeah, a bizarre song. We need to talk about it, right? Every time I hear it, I think, what happens when he plays this at a club where everybody's out in the audience going, dude, party, rock and roll. And then he starts singing this song about uh, abortion. In well, a, I mean, it is not, hey, dude, party when, when he's, I can't imagine what happens to the mood of the house. Well, I, I I think you're I think you're maybe taking things a little out of context in the sense that I think most people that go to a Graham Parker show realize they're not there going party and lighting their you know lighting their lighters up. They if they're fans of him at all, they realize it's a little bit of a different seriousness to it. But I'm just generalizing people that stay up past nine o'clock, Tony. <laughs> oh, I got you. Okay. Um, yeah, as you said, Doug, it's a song about abortion. Um, the most fascinating thing about this song is that it uh it doesn't take it easy on anybody in it no it, do, it doesn't Wooden take the guy singing the guy singing the doctor the the woman who's pregnant all of that stuff it's very but I, it, but it's not necessarily judgmental um i mean it's it's told from the point of view of the guy singing and he's got an i think an obvious point of view about stuff but uh I, I, it doesn't seem like it's dripping a judgment about what's going on. It's sort of just uh, talking about the situation. It's very situational. Um, I think it's somewhat ambiguous, whether it's anti or pro. I think it leans more towards anti just because of the way it is. But, you know, National Review made it one of the 50 greatest conservative songs or listed it. And he, and, <laughs> and, Grant, and Graham Parker's like, what? Uh, he did, he's like scratching his head. No better. That. You never do that. <laughs> Um, Nobody, nobody's going to let you adopt their song. But, but what, but what he says about it, I think is absolutely right. He says, if you, if you look at this just from the point of view that it's against abortion, um, you're looking at it at a very simplistic through very simplistic lenses, because it's much more complicated than that. Just like life is, you know, is this like, this is Mm -hmm. a song about something that happens in life. And I think this was based on a, a, a friend of his or a true story, somebody he knew that went through this. Um, and he's, you know, writing this song, uh, it's, it's a, it's a gut punch of a song. It is. I mean, the lyrics, the way it starts off the lyrics, uh, the opening couple of lines of the song are, are just horrifying. And then when he's describing the doctor, I mean, yeah, I think you mentioned in the opening, this is vinyl tap. It's like the, uh, what does he say about the gloves and the head? I mean, he's fumbling and, you know, and he's rubber gloves and no head. Yeah. And. And then the guy, you know, is 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 sort of like, uh, hey, I got no I've got no real responsibility anymore because of this. I mean, it's not it's not a um, no. a flattering picture of anybody involved. Um, I think it, I, I think it's hard to say this isn't um, against abortion. I think it is not against the current laws or. Um, it's, that, it's not a political reaction. It's it's about here's this ugly reality I that think nobody's a, talking I think about. That's a good way to put that's it. That's a yeah. very fair assessment, Doug. I think I'm that's gonna, absolutely I'm right. I'm going to talk about this ugly reality, and the thing he does that makes it work um, is the it's first person, and the he gets the worst of it. I mean, he yep. the, yeah the guy speaking makes himself look selfish and uh completely evil and mm-hmm. 
the dehumanization of the fourth person in this song, yep. who's the one who dies, uh, yes. is is absolutely complete. Um, it's, no, I, it's it's astounding that this song exists in a rock and roll album to me. I, yeah. I, I really like what you said, Doug, because I think you hit the nail on that, that it's not it's not a political song in the sense that it's standing up against the idea. It's speaking about the reality right. of of what happens and um, and the fact that regardless of which side of the fence you are on that argument, it's the, the whole idea is not a pleasant one. Yeah. And it, and it's the way that it's delivered. I mean, his voice is so um, prominent in the mix and it's just an acoustic guitar mainly and, uh, and a Fender Rhodes. Um, it's it, the way that he delivers each line. You can, you can't miss it. I mean, it's, there's nothing buried about his delivery. And the fact that it's on one of his records where it's not the single thing held up for uh criticism it's it's just the latest thing held up for criticism on this right no that's a valid point too it's sort of uh it's uh part of the whole the whole uh spewing process if you will he wasn't singing about dancing in the streets one song before this right right well um and uh you can't be too strong you can't be too strong you can't be too strong you decide what's wrong uh what do you think he's getting at there as the song fades out he changes that right you know he says you can't be too hard you can't be too tough you can't be too rough too right too wrong so i don't know i think saying you can't be too wrong or you can't be um you decide what's wrong yeah you decide what's wrong i think leads i don't know it's i've always thought seen it maybe differently than you doug is a little bit more open-ended um well i I do think it is open-ended yeah um but i do think he's trying to say something about may hardening your heart after a decision like this um yeah Hmm. i don't know I, I, think, I think one of the reasons it says such a compelling song in my mind is you don't get these things answered. It's like a good science fiction book that makes you wonder what what really just happened. Yeah, I, I again, I think you're right. I think the song uh, that's what ha- where it has its emotional impact is it's not telling you how to think about it. It's describing the situation in very stark and realistic ways. And then right. you're kind of left at the end of it reeling from that experience trying to figure out what just happened yeah you know it ends it ends like uh, a sitcom doesn't or it yeah. ends like a episode of star trek doesn't there's no everybody that gathered box. on the bridge and bone says something funny and everybody goes <laughs> there's none of that you don't get any of that at the end of this song it's yeah. just all right you're stuck with what i left in your lap okay yeah. well um, we got to come out of that trance. This one is, and again, I said these all sound like hits to me. I, I'm confused by that, but this is uh, passion is no ordinary word. get in too much into this song 
his description of the guitar riff on this is so great. He just says it's, it's lonely and so yearning, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, which fits exactly what the song's about. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah. again, Brinsley Swartz kind of bringing it. Yeah. Know? It's really cool. Um, I like this song. It, it starts off kind of slow and it, then it kind of builds into this mid tempo riff. Another thing that's unusual about it is that the, uh, the verses are in the major key and the, but the um, reverse, you know, you usually a chorus is usually in the, the major key and the, the minor key is what you write the verses in. And cause the, the chorus is what you want to stand out and sign, sound bright and happy. Um, but he does do some odd things on some of these songs. Um, he, he will, he won't go to the, 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 the root, chord he'll, he'll dance all around it especially with the guitar lines and then all of a sudden he'll jump back on into the uh, onto the the root chord so there is some a uh, little bit strange things with the way that the song structures are um and you know there's and there's not a whole lot of um he gets to the chorus pretty quickly a lot of times he doesn't really build up to them well, and, and how about that line in the first stanza? When I pretend to touch you, you pretend to feel. That's I mean, yeah, such a. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, uh, how does some guy write something that sounds so? Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, like like you know, oh, um, like yearning for something, but yet so full of venom at the same time. Yeah, I don't know no. how he does it. There's not there's not a cuddle up with your sweetie. No, no this is a, available this is a, on this album. It's a prickly, prickly song. It so everything's I, a thrill and every girl's a kill. I, I I read a great review that said every time he says the word passion, it means less every time he sings it. Kind of kind of hits the nail. I mean, it's definitely yeah. uh yeah. as as Doug said, not something you put you're sitting in front of the fire with your girlfriend thinking singing yeah. this song. It doesn't sound like someone who's going to end up in a happy place unless he finds a new song. Does does he ever end up in a happy place? <laughs> I don't know. We got to flip her this, over, right? Is this this is a flip her out. over right here. This is yep. one of the most clear flip her overs <laughs> ever. Um, this is so obvious. A, a side two song. Um, this is a fun song. I love this song. Um, I guess it's... It's not supposed to be fun. <laughs> it's uh, it's it Saturday Night is Dead. You're right, Doug. This is the I think probably the most straightforward rock and rocker on this album. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's fun to listen to. It's not fun to listen to the lyrics necessarily. Yeah. You know? No, it's not fun to listen to the lyrics. <laughs> well, and it's and it's uh it's 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 interesting because it's kind of a two-pronged critique on just the just general suburban life, but also kind of what you have to do to get when you're getting old. You know, yeah. as you get old, Saturday night becomes dead to you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, anyway. Anyway, it's a jaunty number. Yeah, it's probably the most rocking song on the album. Um, it's got a real another one, another really cool guitar riff that starts it off. Uh, this is a song where he uh, he does mess with the song structure a little bit, switches keys, um, and there's some tempo changes and stuff, but it's a... 
and and this was the song I mentioned earlier that was sort of part of his. Hey, I'm going to make maybe make a concept album that that uh, mm. I think this definitely fits in with that same theme. And I and I wonder if he's thinking this, but can you imagine you're playing this at, at some pub? The crowd's going nuts. You you go into this <laughs> song and they they turn it up and everybody's rocking on Saturday night. It'd be so ironic. They're all singing Saturday Night's Dead, um, and they're <laughs> well. And it's this it, rocker. I think it's just. I kept envisioning that this this whole album made me think of a concert because it's yeah. all these songs would be fantastic live, and I, and I can just see this concert where he's cracking himself up while the crowd's going nuts singing <laughs> about uh, Saturday Night being dead. Well, and yeah. it's just that simple flip of that that rock and roll trope of that Saturday night, you know? There's yeah, all I these mean, songs about how great... The Bay City Rollers or uh, Elton John. <laughs> or Elton John. Saturday yeah. Night's all right for fighting. Yeah, and you, and you just it's just a little... It's that little twist, as Spinal yeah. Tap would say. That little that little, that little twist. Um, I gotta get the boys around. <laughs> and and then here he comes. Oh, it's dead, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Go home and watch uh, reruns of 60 Minutes or something. <laughs> well, I, I love that song. And I, I got to say, I have a soft spot for a smart aleck. And uh, yeah, he hits that. He hits that spot. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a, a soft spot for some love stick guy getting uh, <laughs> up a tree about a girl. Uh, Next song, Love Gets You Twisted. Love Gets You Twisted Love Gets You Twisted All the way The hearts are enlisted The hearts are enlisted To break each day I think this is a highlight on the album. Um, It's probably about as close as Parker's going to get to an actual love song. Um, it's a fade in too, guys. Yeah, it is. might fade in, but it is a it's, fade. It's in. a cool. It's it's uh, it's a very short fade in. Yeah, but yeah. it's uh, it's a real cool way to start a song. It's mm-hmm. a great song. Oh man, I just love that sentiment. You know that when love just gets you so, uh, it just changes your whole perspective about everything. And, well, and uh, it does. It's not like when you fall in love, uh, bluebirds and bunnies bring you your right. clothes in the morning and. It's, it's gonna, it's it's gonna screw you up like any other yeah, kind of. That, right. that, that one line right. where he says, she, "When she's in my arms, I get tangled up." It's true. I can't see the other point of view. That sums it up right there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, how many times does he say, "Screw yourself up"? A lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. Uh, I love it that sentiment. Look like a good thing. No, but. Yeah, I, I keep imagining a mower going over baling wire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the thing you can say about him is he's he's it's not it's almost uh, too easy to say he's just angry all the time. I think it may be more more on point that he's just realistic about what he's describing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is there is some venom in what he talks about, but he's also just able to just just say this is the way it is. Is it good or bad? I don't know. This is what this is what happens, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he's just stating a fact. Yeah. And if there's someone out there who doesn't know what he's talking about, um, they will. They <laughs> fell in love with the, in high school, and it was all great from then. 
from there on out um, mm-hmm. does not reflect uh, my experience at all. Uh, I mean, this song <laughs> does, not with the, anybody who's having trouble understanding it. We've got protection next. Get out at any price before the feeling gets too nice. Just can't get, just can't get no protection. First of all, it would be unusual if we were talking about a, a British album of this ilk from this time if it didn't have a reggae beat in it. So we right. got we got that check mark. We got on this that song. check. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, whenever I hear, so I didn't say this about this album early on when you asked me why I picked it, but this is one of those albums where I'm like, every time the next song comes up, just to say what you said, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite song. Every yeah. time I hear this song, I think this is my favorite song. This I, is definitely one of my favorites. I own. love this song so much. It's so good. It seems and it's to a, me this got radio play, a uh, pretty considerable radio play. Am I making that up? High school, I was probably thinking it was Elvis Costello. <laughs> well, um, I, I think it's it's uh, one of the kind of funny things is I scoured the internet trying to find Winston Churchill's speech where he says what's in the opening lines uh, you know about so all of you be damned we can't have heaven crammed and i found a clip of it and it appears unless somebody can correct me on this it appears that it was an outtake from a speech that uh that they were recording of churchill um huh. during in january 1950 he was preparing a newsreel message for the british public for the following month's general election and it's and and he's sitting there and with a big smile on his face, he says the line that's actually attributed to Jonathan Swift, which is uh, we are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. That's what he says. And then he kind of uh. chuckles. So I don't know if that's what Graham Par- Parker saw um, and what pissed him off so much. But I don't know if Churchill ever actually put that in a real speech and made it part of the message he was. Huh. I think I think he was being funny, like, hey, we're the chosen few. I'm going to say this off camera. It'd be snarky. But, I, you know, I think he was politically smart enough. Not well, to that's probably one of those things that's popularized. And uh, nowadays it would be a meme. But uh, it, it, maybe it's just being a smart duck, like when Reagan says, uh, the bummers on their are on their way to Russia now. <laughs> what it, when when he didn't know the mic was hot or something? <laughs> is there a cooler line than "It ain't the knife in the heart that tears you apart; it's just the thought of someone sticking it in." Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like God, <laughs> such yeah, a cool line. Um, it's like he wants a, a break from uh, all the bad news. What 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 do you guys think this song's about? I, I think he's looking at at the world, and uh, there's not a safe space anywhere. Right. And even though they didn't have safe spaces back then, you <laughs> didn't realize that we didn't have no safe space back then. And uh, I, th- I think the line about turn off all the information, radios just keep picking up. That's I think he's just saying everywhere he looks, there's a threat, and there's no. I- uh, Safety yeah. from it. It, it, it's funny. I always felt like this song was about a relationship that went bad. I thought it's, it was at first until I 
started looking at the lyrics. I mean, even today. But I mean, uh, but even the lyrics were. I think, I think all uh, all songs are about that, Tony. But I don't know. But I mean, even I, I think this <laughs> is a met- I mean, to jail. <laughs> yeah, I, I just thought this was a, a metaphor. Like when he said the line where he says, "Every bomb is detonated, every switch is thrown." Everybody tells me, "Don't uh, don't be scared. Act as if you've never cared." So I wear a blank expression to conceal my real impression. Turn off the information radios. Just pick up that station. I think he's talking about. He he's had a horrible relationship with this woman and uh and everyone's telling him to act like it doesn't matter because she's gonna pick up on it if you do. Now I could be reading way into that, but uh well, I think that's as reasonable as anything else. He's it's, yeah. he's not um explicit enough for anyone to criticize well, other, other than when he's talking about you know he talks about ripping up the love letters and his hands are sweaty i mean i think that's where that hit when i was I, when huh. i heard i was listening to it i was like this sounds like this is talking about something deeper but what it really is is he's using all of this information about or all this metaphors about the world and how how dangerous it is to talk specifically about he doesn't have any protection from the way he feels about this girl or this this person who he loved who just ripped his heart out, <laughs> right. you know, the, uh, I, I like think I it said, could that, easily be that. And I also could be, that's just one more thing in his list of things, maybe a list of inputs coming from the world that he's, uh, yeah, you, you could be right. I mean, I, 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 I think go either way, but I, uh, the, the mistake would be to say that you're certain about anything on any uh, of these. Things. That's, that's, you're yeah. probably right about that. Other than the fact that this is a fantastic song. <laughs> <laughs> And then the next song is Waiting for the U-Boats. Something concrete, waiting for the U-Boats. Waiting for the U-Boats. We are waiting for the U-Boats. We know that they're there. The U-Boats. Sorry, waiting for the UFOs. <laughs> I said well, UFOs because for a way, long time I thought he was saying waiting for the UFOs. Well, that's because that's what the way the way the Brits say UFO is UFO. Is that right? Did they really all say that? I thought he invented that. No, 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 no. The the club that Pink Floyd got their started in their start their started in got their start in was the was the UFO club. Oh, that's, they, that's really? how they pronounced it. UFO. Yeah. Um, if you're, uh, I'm glad if to you're know that from uh, the United Kingdom. Please send us a uh, message of you saying UFO so we can confirm that. <laughs> um, you know what this song always reminded me of? You guys are going to think I'm nuts. This is like a new wave version of a Jackson 5 song. I don't think that's nuts. I don't think that's nuts. Um, with that, that kind of uh, shuffling. Tell us kind what of kind thing, of yeah. uh, drumming that is at the end. It's, it's, yeah, it's got uh, kind of a dust. Rest of the album. It's got a it's shuffle like a beat. And uh, a boogie woogie drumming, yeah, yeah, and it has to fade out with waiting for the UFOs, boogie, 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 boogie. I don't know, it's 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 so much fun. This song, (laughs) yeah, it's it's a much needed break. Uh, it is, (laughs) (laughs) it is. I mean, Uh, I love, um. I love conspiracy theories and UFOs and Loch Ness monsters and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, sometimes at, late at night, I used to have trouble going to sleep and I could put on uh, Coast to Coast well, uh, AM and they would talk about conspiracy theories. 
and it's it's relaxing because none of it's true. Well, but it's it was also imaginative. <laughs> it was relaxing at one point. <laughs> the way the world is now, and how many people, people actually believe yeah, this yeah. stuff. Too many people but, believe them. But do you think now. it's interesting you say that, Doug? Do you think that's a generational thing? Because I was the same way. I was fascinated that in search of show. Uh, yeah, char- yeah, chariots of the gods. I was fascinated by all of that stuff when I was a kid. You know, I, I think um, that's, I think everybody's mm-hmm. like that. It, the just the just the things are crypt. What are they? Uh, cryptozoology. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody's interested in all of that. Um, I think it just changes what what kids are. Uh, if you're a young person, if you're one of the three young people listening to us right now, <laughs> tell us which. Uh, conspiracy theories or uh, weird uh things but it's got to be it's got to be uh natural for all people to have an interest in that otherwise the history channel would have history on it and the discovery <laughs> channel would have uh, science on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i just i find all of that stuff just immensely yeah. fascinating don't get excited This is a very uh, exciting song about not getting excited. <laughs> you know, you know what this song makes me want to do when it's over with? Start the album all Start over. Start the album all over again. <laughs> yeah. This is the most Elvis Costello sound. Yeah, I, I, have, I, have that in my, I have that in my notes. I have this in my notes. <laughs> I guess it's obvious. Yeah, I know. It's That's pretty so uh, right down to the Steve Naive keyboard sound. I, you know, I literally have also the most Elvis Costello to me written down in my notes. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> I, I was I was saying that too. Um I guess I guess it's uh, extremely obvious and we all thought that we had some yeah. amazing insight. Grant Parker had it like I said had a chip on his shoulder about the whole Elvis Costello thing. Yeah. I, I think that's not the case anymore, but I think at some point it just became, you know, Elvis Costello got huge and Grant Parker didn't. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, um you can't say it's because he's significantly more eclectic than Elvis Costello because Elvis Costello is as eclectic as hell. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the deal is. I don't know why he didn't take off like Elvis Costello did. Um, I think it's hard to beat Elvis Costello at just the sheer accessibility and hooks. And even though I, I find this album to be accessible, and with a lot of hooks, uh, all three of us have been exposed to a whole bunch of music like this. Mm-hmm. And we got to remember that when you're talking about getting as big as Elvis Costello is, it takes a song like Alice or uh, My Aim is True that mm-hmm. anybody can figure out. My, I could go play that for my mom and she would say, that's well, a nice song. I, I, I think... <laughs> I think you hit the head on the, I have said this to you three Whatever times. You keep is. hitting, you keep hitting the nail on the head on this podcast, but earlier when you were talking about how um, you, people talk about Elvis Costello being an angry young man, but he's not in the way that Graham Parker is. Right. And, and I think that people paying attention that might just slightly rub people the wrong way. I, I, I get that, I guess, mm-hmm. but uh and and again, I think I think he's probably a little bit more motivated than Graham Parker was, um, and and I think he's 
put them side by side. Graham Parker looks like your crazy uncle and Elvis <laughs> Costello looks like some hip, you know, uh, rebranding of, of uh, Buddy Holly. So, yeah. I mean, just marketability, yeah. there was something different there, you right. know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I, I told, there's a girl I know named Allison who's in her 20s. And I said, do people always sing that Elvis Costello song to you? And she goes, what? Yeah. <laughs> and she she had never heard it. And uh, so I, I told her to play it. And she goes, that's a sweet song. That's such a nice song. So that's the one who completely misunderstood the meaning of that song. But, uh, <laughs> immediately, immediately enjoyed it because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's just ex- immediately accessible. Yeah, accessible and, it, and they can, you can't, I don't think there's a song, uh, uh, by Graham Parker that you could misunderstand that way or that you could say, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, but, but that being said, there's not a clunker on this album. No, no, there really not. isn't. And he probably really ought to be more popular than he is. But again, I, I think guys that listen to as much music as we do have trouble understanding sometimes what makes a hit because what makes a hit is people who don't normally buy music buy it. Right. Yeah, well, my, my right. friend, my friend, Rich, who I mentioned earlier, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think it is prefers like, you know, when we were talking about Elvis Costello, I called him up and, or texted him and said, cause he had always said Elvis Costello. there's, he never, he's a huge power pop fan. And he said, Elvis Costello is not power pop, but I think he might include this album as power pop. And I never, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I do think he's a bigger Graham Parker fan than he is an Elvis Costello fan. And I should have asked him why, because that would be interesting to figure that out. But, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I mean, they're both they're both are are capable of of changing musical styles and and doing it well um, yeah. with a few misses here or there. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just the the anger seeping through Graham Parker's pores on these songs that I think maybe just turns people a little differently. I think you're right. It's not, if you're paying attention, it's hard to say that's a sweet song, Mm -hmm. you know? And also, um, what's his biggest hit? His biggest single. Oh, geez. Uh, Local girls. Yeah. Probably local girls. Okay. uh, So protection. One of those two. Um, this is a great album. All is he's got a lot of great albums, but he d- yeah. doesn't have a lot of singles. If no, if he does If you walk down the uh, street and start asking people, "Give me three songs by Elvis Costello," you'll They'll get a lot more answers me, than you would yeah. for Graham Parker. And I let think me, that's not because strength of album, but strength of singles. Yeah, I think you're right. It was like what I said. This album hit number forty, but the singles did not chart at all, which is a weird thing. You think mm-hmm. about it. Um, that's like old school almost. Um, uh, Mercury poisoning should have been a monster hit, and and because the record company didn't do what they should have done and and been more brave about releasing that, that song should yeah. have been huge. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I think I, I don't I don't know about his work ethic compared to other people. I don't I don't know um, about all those decisions that record companies managers and uh stars make on on how to promote them their material but i do know that um one thing we've learned doing this is there's a lot of mystery about what becomes a single and what doesn't yeah right 
Yeah. Yeah. Is this your favorite album, uh, Graham Parker? Mine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really, I really like those first two albums a lot as well. But this one, yeah, this is, this, this hits me where, where, where it matters. What about you, Jim? This is my favorite. Um, I think I need to go back and listen to the first two albums again, because I do, you know, in the course of doing this, I did listen to them, but not with a discerning ear. But um, I do like that, some of that brass band stuff. And the only other album by him I actually own is uh, the Mona Lisa Sister, which I was not, I remember when I first bought it, just not being all that enthralled with it. This, this was, this was one of those albums when I heard it, um, I liked it and then kind of put it aside. And then when I dug it out again, a little bit later, it was like, right. Oh my God, this is great. You know, that's pretty much what happened to me. Like, which I need, we need to get a psychiatrist or psychologist to come on this program (laughs) and tell us about that. Listen to an album about five times and put it away and then pull it out again. And all the things you can notice if your sixth time is a month later, it's so different than if your sixth uh, time is the next day. And I, I would love for someone to explain that to me. Yeah. Uh, I guess a couple of nights sleeping it uh, is yeah. able to work its way into your brain. And oh, yeah. I think I, I defy anybody to listen to this and not have these songs creeping around in their oh, subconscious, yeah. in a, yeah. you know, days after they stop listening to it. Well, what, <laughs> real, real quick, before we get to our ratings, I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners named Ted Anthony, who actually wrote us several weeks ago asking us to do a Graham Parker album. And uh, he mentioned a couple and he mentioned squeezing out sparks. And I responded to him and told him we would be doing this in the future. So hopefully he's, he's heard this and has as, as appreciated our, our take on it and has enjoyed it. Jonathan J.M. Rowe, humble producer, as you know, since you're not the guy who picked this album and since you're not the one doing all the blabbering, uh, <laughs> you will be picked to go first tonight. You're going okay. to give us your um, cold hearted orb review and you're also <laughs> going to give us your uh your review heart, from your the passion heart. yeah not not the passion graham parker talks about but uh, yeah. maybe i should say compassion um <laughs> where do you where do you put this on the scale one from five uh as a critic i i'm gonna give it a five i i really don't know if there's a a song i mean or an album that um could be better than this one. I mean, the, the lyrics, the playing, um, the delivery, um, it really is a, a, a great album. And like I was saying, it's, it's unique in that it's angry, but it's not just angry. It's it, um, everything. It's, it's angry at specific things. Um, and I just love the way that he delivers some of the lines. And um, so I think I'm, I'm going to give it a five. There's really not a clunker of a song on this at all. Um, as a, from my heart, I'm going to give it a four or five, not something that I think grabbed me immediately. It took me a few, uh, times to get to, to like this album. And, but I, I mean, now that I did, and this is the hardest I've ever listened to it and it never really, I never got tired of it. I was happy to listen to it every time. Uh, so yeah, four or five, I think there's albums that I cherish more a little bit. So. All right. Um, now I think what everybody's been dying to hear is is my review. Um, I know I have been. <laughs> I um, my cold hearted 
critic is is going to recognize that this is exceptional songwriting, both uh, both original and interesting tunes, and particularly uh, compelling lyrics. So that's that's there. Um, the band, if if there is something this band is doing that is not competent, uh, I'm not sophisticated enough to hear it. Uh, I I would say. I'm I'm probably four eight four nine uh, as a critic. It's it's going to score very high. Um, there's there's just no question about that. Um, me personally, my uh, sensitive side. This is, I'm glad we do both of these because I'm not going to listen to this album a whole lot, and it's not anything that's the fault of the album. It's just a little outside of. Uh, what I want to hear on a regular basis. And, uh, and the easiest way to explain that is those earlier albums with the more soulful sound and, and the, uh, the oh, horns, those are much closer to my sweet spot than this is. Uh, that's in no way a, uh, a criticism of this album. So I'd probably be like four, four for, uh, my emotional, um, uh, what is it? What side of the brain is that? The right brain or whatever? All that nonsense yeah. about stuff being on one <laughs> side of your brain. Yeah, I think it's your right side. Tony! <laughs> yes, Doug. You did us the great favor of bringing us this album. And I was wondering, have you ever considered what you would rate it on a uh, personal <laughs> level and also as a critic? Well, I knew I wanted to do this and I'm glad we did it. I didn't realize how much fun I would have listening to it over the last uh, little while. I don't know. And I'm, I'm sorry to say this, this isn't the dig in any way, but I don't know if it's because it came after Steve Ray Vaughn and, uh, <laughs> and I, and I, and, it, and it's much more my cup of tea. So I was just kind of really enjoying it, but I enjoyed this album more than I have in a really, really, really long time. There were times in the past when I put it on and then I might get a little tired of it and take it off. I, I listened to this album over and over and over again. It was just bringing me so much joy. Um, so I guess I'm talking about my own personal re review of this. Um, you know, I think I've only given one album a double five on this and that was uh, American beauty. Um, I don't think this is quite a double five. I'd say it's a, it's probably a four, eight, for me in terms of my personal. And I think I agree with JM about, uh, I think it is a five critically how uh, you can hear the elements of this stuff on his, on his earlier albums, mm -hmm. but how he can make this from that. And it's not derivative of anything that came before. It's entirely unique. Yes. It sounds like Elvis Costello, but that's only because we know Elvis Costello. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it would if we would have thought that when it came out. I think this album was a. I think this album shook a lot of people, especially like I said, um, his third album critically was kind. Of, people didn't like it that much, so to go from that to this, I think people were like, "What?" I think it was a. I think it was a shock to the system, as you said, Doug. Competent. I think it's a beyond that. This this every song on this album has a hook to it. I mean, it's like one hook after another. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Brinsley Schwartz is, 
he deserves a lot of credit for that. The lyrics are smart, intelligent, and 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 everything. The production on it is crisp, and and uh, it's just it's yeah, it's a five critically and a four eight uh, personally. So uh, in two thousand seven, during South by Southwest, um, I saw him play with the Figs again, but they didn't do the whole skinny tie thing um, at the mm-hmm. dog and at the dog and duck, which for those of you who lived in Austin was this great. British pub that's not there anymore. Um, yes. God bless progress, right? But um, somehow through my wife, I got invited to a house party on the east side of Austin where the figs were playing in somebody's backyard. I guess they knew them or something. And they were two doors down from a friend of hers. And she found out about it. She knew how much I love the band. So I'm standing in this backyard, really the only person paying attention to the figs playing. And I'm leaning up against this rail, drinking a beer. And I look over and Graham Parker is standing right next to me, digging the music. And, uh, and he looks at me and goes, a pretty good band. Huh? Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 it was just a really weird, surreal moment. Um, yeah. but, uh, He's, a, he's not the tallest guy on the planet, by the way. No, I, I remember that when I saw him. Well, I think all um all pub rock guys are short. Except for Nick Lowe. Isn't Nick Lowe pretty tall? Yeah, he's like 6'3 or something. Yeah. Is he really? Yeah, he's yeah. a tall dude. Plus, with that hair, I think he's 6'5". With, <laughs> pom- with that pompadour he's got going. Um, anyway, I just wanted to tell that story just because it's a, it, it's one of those bizarre Austin type things that you know doesn't um, almost doesn't happen anywhere else. Maybe LA or something. But Tony, yes, Doug, we happen to be back in 1979. Can can you give us a recommendation for the young folks out there? Well, Doug, I have a recommendation that came out yesterday. <laughs> That's pretty new. That's pretty new. Yeah. Yeah, people um, who were born this century could actually go to the store and buy that. Or now it's it. now it's by a band that hadn't released anything in the last thirty years, so this is their wah, first wah, wah. <laughs> first release in thirty years. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a it's an album called Tomorrow that was released yesterday. Tomorrow by a band called the Rave Ups, and um, the Rave Ups were one of these bands out of L.A. that was sort of you know, on the beginning of the whole Americana roots rock thing, their debut album came out in 85. It was called town, town and country. Uh, they got a little bit of fame because they're in the movie pretty and pink. I think the, the, the lead singer, uh, whose name is Jimmer Pad- Padraski. I think he dated Molly Ringwald's sister. So that's how he got the movie. Um, but, um, they, they released an album in 90 called chance, which is named after his kid. And that album was, I listened to that album nonstop when it came out. I loved it. They got a little bit of MTV airplay. So they got, they did get some notoriety, but not what they really deserved. Anyway, for some reason, the their label dropped them and they broke up. Um, and the band got back together to work on the 30th anniversary release of, of uh, town and country and decided they would start writing music together again. And, and they released this album, like I said, called tomorrow, which I don't mean this to sound bad for if anybody who knows the band or listens to the band says this, but this album is better than it has any right to be for a band that's been sitting around for 30 years. It reminds me a little bit of the long riders releasing, you know, they released psychedelic country soul a couple of years ago and they hadn't released anything since 87. And that album is fantastic. So the same sort of thing. I, I didn't know what to expect out of curiosity. I put it on, uh, 
you know, put the single on when it came out and I was blown away by how good it was that I immediately ordered the album. I was like, I got to have this and I want to support this band for putting something out this good. And it is that good. Um, it is, it is really good. If I had to talk about a couple of standouts, probably the song, how, how old am I? Uh, which is a classic rave ups kind of sound. And then this, the song, the second song, I think it's the second song on the album called Bridget Bardot is just an absolute blast. I highly, highly recommend this. We, we should all support bands that can, take a hiatus like this and then come back and, and knock it out of the park like these guys did. So um did they really... suggest Bridget Bardot as a way to help the country go? <laughs> I don't believe so, but that would be good if they had a um, little bit of a callback. Um an interesting fact for anyone who cares about such things is uh, Jimmer put put Drasky is uh the first cousin of Chief Justice John Roberts. <laughs> I just found that out today. <laughs> That's a really strange fact, but wow. it's true. No, we're on. <laughs> anyway, I always, always trying to learn stuff like that before I listen to a band. Yeah, mm-hmm. tomorrow by the Rave Ups, uh, it'll be on our recommendations list. I really think you should support them again. Uh, a band that's able to to not miss a beat after that long and 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 make it out. And if you like that kind of roots rock, uh, Americana, uh, rock and roll influenced stuff, you're gonna love this. Well, thank you, Tony. And that's it for our look at Graham Parker's outstanding album, Squeezing Out Sparks. Let us know what you think of the album on our website, tappingvinyl.com. You'll also find all sorts of good stuff up there from uh, reviews we've done for past albums, uh, including links to all past episodes of This Is Vinyl Tap. You can also reach us via Twitter at Tapping Vinyl, and we have a Facebook group page. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by a New Yorker who's known as a Texas artist, Jerry Jeff Walker, and his album, Riding High. None of the girls are as pretty as Susan, but I like something to see. Yeah, the bike can't call the kettle black, cause Jane's all running on the same old track. Can't be For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, nobody hurts you better than yourself. You know, for so long, I thought the, the Beatles were Canadian because they're so good and wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Canadians are fantastic individuals. <laughs>